0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.
1: shifts answer the amoral craving for novelty. Obama's election victory did it, so did the Auschwitz footage in its day. Good and evil are irrelevant. Show us the world's not the way we thought it was, and a part of us rejoices. Nothing's exempt. One's own death sentence elicits a mad little hallelujah, and mine's egregiously overdue. For 10, 20. Thirty years now, I've been dragging myself through the motions. How long do werewolves live? According to Wokop, around 400 years. I don't know how. Naturally, one sets oneself challenges. Sanskrit, Kant, advanced calculus, Tai Chi. But that only addresses the problem of time. The bigger problem of being just keeps getting bigger. One by one, I've exhausted the modes. Hedonism, asceticism, spontaneity, reflection. Everything from miserable Socrates to the happy pig. My mechanism's worn out. I don't have what it takes. I still have feelings, but I'm sick of having them. Which is another feeling I'm sick of having. I just, I just don't want any more life.
0: Glenn Duncan is the author of Hope, Love Remains, I Lucifer, Weathercock, The Death of an Ordinary Man, The Bloodstone Papers, and A Day and a Night and a Day. His new novel is The Last Werewolf. Thank you for joining me, Glenn.
1: Thanks for having me on the show.
0: And with us in the studio, we have Stephen Coates, The Real Tuesday Weld. Thank you for joining me, Stephen. A pleasure. Now uh, this is a very interesting novel and an interesting collaboration and since we've got Steven right here let's talk a little bit about your collaborations this isn't the first time you guys have worked together is it Steve it's so?
2: not actually we we um God. we um uh, did you get it like this all the time. It's all all the collaborative I hope work like on the camera <laughs> um,
1: where were we? Uh, uh, not <laughs> your first <laughs> collaboration. collaboration. Our ongoing, sophisticated
2: collaborations. On yeah. No, we. Um, well, we're, we're all friends, and we grew up in the same place, and we both live in London. And we, back in two thousand and three, we, Glenn wrote a book called I Lucifer. Uh, I was going to say an autobiography of the devil, but it's not quite right. Pretty um, much. A sort of, uh, uh, And and I wrote an album uh, called I Lucifer, which was you know a soundtrack. It was a collection of songs and pieces uh, influenced and by the themes and relationships and characters in the book roll on six or seven years and Glenn's probably knocked out, was it, four or five books? Oh, yeah, something like that, yeah. I'd squeezed out three albums uh, and then Glenn sent me the manuscript for The Last Werewolf in the end of 2009 and um, suggested we revisit that idea and uh, so we have. So it's a, this, this is an album which is a, you know, a soundtrack to the book. Uh, more of a soundtrack than Lucifer actually because it's it's got readings by Glenn and uh, voices of the characters of the book voiced by actors.
0: Glenn, when you were working on this, did you uh, did you think about um, uh, the music going in as a writer? Did you think, I, were you hearing music as you started to no, write?
1: No, not not really. I mean, um, as Stephen said, we've known each other for a long time. So I know there's a natural affinity in terms of the you know sensibility, sense of humor, and, and so on. Um, but I didn't... I, 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 that's entirely him. I mean, I, I, I write the book as I would want to write the book. Um, and, I mean, we talked about it a little bit before, I think probably even before Stephen saw the first draft. Um, but I find that I'm never... I mean, I'm always p- happily surprised, because the stuff's good, that he does, but I'm, n- I'm never surprised that he gets the book in the way that he does. And I've, I've become familiar with the way in which he can translate the ideas and the themes into, into songs and into pieces of music. So it's it's a collaboration in a way, but it's not it's not like we're working along these uh, working on these things side by side. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like sort of you know twins separated at birth that go off and have occasional weird <laughs> moments of kind of telepathic connection, and then are brought together in this monstrous release into the world.
0: <laughs> so two ugly stepsisters. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Monstrous is, a, is certainly a good word to use with this, but you know, despite all the violence, blood, horror, monsters, every form of supernatural being that one can imagine, I'd say this is a book whose primary concern is ennui, and it's a beautiful expression of ennui, world weariness. Talk yeah, about that. You, you seem a bit young to be so weary of this well I'm, not, this I'm not that young anymore,
1: <laughs> sadly, as the grey hairs in my beard will attest, but um, yeah, I think, I mean, I, all, I approach all novels in exactly the same way. It doesn't matter whether it's a werewolf or whether it's a sort of housewife in the Midwest having a crisis Uh, and that is I try and imagine what it would be like to be that person with their situation granted this is a bizarre situation it's a potentially 400 year lifespan and you have to kill and eat somebody once a month or you die Um, but the process is exactly the same And in answer to the question that I asked myself what would it be like if I was in this person's shoes well my feeling was that given his life and his situation given the wealth, given you know he spent 200 years reading the best that the world's got to offer, I think round about 200 years I'd, I'd be starting to flag. You know. <laughs> um, so that really seemed the natural starting point. There was also a kind of, I suppose, an appealing comic inversion in that um, e- every other protagonist does what he or she does at bottom to stay alive. So to begin with a protagonist whose goal is actually to die was just in a kind of it was too sweet to you know, resist. Um, so that was, that was really the story behind it. But, but you know, in answer to the question about the ennui, it's just that is how I think it would feel if you had to do this you know, mm-hmm. after a certain length of time. Some people would go sooner, crack sooner, no doubt. Others might last <laughs> another 100 years. But somewhere in there, I, I can't help feeling that you would, it would just all get too much.
0: One of the things, too, when we start reading this book, the economy and of the plotting and the exposition is just amazing. I mean, you pull us right in. And I'm wondering how you approach this book as a writer, did you think did you just sit down and write the first line of the book and then at the end of the last line it all came out perfectly? Or what did you had you thought about this subject?
1: I'd not I I mean I have to be truthful. I hadn't really thought about the plot except for two or three main things that I knew had Mm -hmm. to happen. There was a vague sense of what the what the midpoint would be and what the sort of, you know, two thirds of the way through, what he'd be dealing with then. But what I really thought about, I suppose, or what I, what, where the energy went was just imagining the condition. you know mm-hmm. the plot I hope the plot's good. I mean I hope the plot satisfies enough genre conventions to keep you know suspense and thrill and forward narrative drive junkies happy. But that wasn't really where the work was. The work was in, in, in imagining the condition and taking the psychology of the condition seriously. That's, that's what differentiates I hope what differentiates this book from straight genre because straight genre begins with the question. What are werewolves like? As in, what do we already know about werewolves? And that invites the fiction of the familiar. It tells us what we already know. The alternative question to ask is, what would it be like if I were a werewolf? And that sounds like the same question, but it's not. It's totally different, and it invites the fiction of the strange, which is what I'm interested in, at least here. Um, so the plot. The plot was. The plot was. I'm not a natural dramatist. Plots, my weakest. In in, all, in all, None of my books are known for being <laughs> for being sort of page turners in that sense. Um, So I had to go away and really try and, you know, make sure that I had enough thrills and chills and suspense and unanswered questions and so on to keep things going. But the imaginative work was really just in taking the condition seriously.
0: And and I think that uh, from what I've heard of of Stephen's music, he's really got those kind of long thoughts. That's what, as I read this, he had so many great long thoughts. And, you know, you pointed out something, too. Um, This kind of, uh, the ability of uh, humor to inform this, there, there's a lot of real fun stuff. But Stephen, as you read this book, you know you want to you want to make an album that pulls people along. But you also had an interesting idea. We have um, readings. We have full-on songs. So, just as a as a songwriter, talk about looking at this and saying, "Well, this is going to be a song, and this is going to be a reading." How do you make those decisions?
2: Well, the the um I think the amount of the, the voice, the voices, the spoken voices, which are on the record, there's actually not that many. In fact, it's just enough to kind of piece together like a, a necklace to string together the music, because actually it's got to stand alone as a record. You know, you don't have to read the book mm-hmm. to, to to understand the record. Um, and actually, one of the interesting things which somebody suggested to me is, that if you hadn't read the book and you heard the record, what would you make of these voices? You know, and actually, it is possible that you'd come up with your own st- version of the story until you would read the book. But the the content of the songs, um, you know, they gave you some song titles: "Tear Us Apart," "I Always Kill the Things I Love," "The Hunt," "Ghosts." You know, they're they're sort of they're drawn from his predicament or his character and the relationships that he has. And I think if you're a songwriter, you know, you're you're pretty much writing about you know the the same kind of things, you know, always, um, uh, you know, love, loss, death, friendship, violence, betrayal. Um, um, so, you know, when you've got a book which is quite cinematic, like The Last Werewolf, it actually gives you an opportunity to mm-hmm. reimagine those themes from the perspective of somebody else apart from yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, he's a very particular, interesting character, isn't he? He's, he's the own, actually, the ennui is an interesting thing. So I think these songs try and take the, you know, walk the line between being a song, tear us apart, it could be a, talking about a werewolf tearing somebody part or it could be talking about a relationship and the things that happen in a relationship which tear it apart so I try to walk that line between the two
1: To my, to my ear almost all the songs that are, the, the songs which have lyrics anyway are, they're, they're, they can be read on, on at least two levels, there's always a kind of if you know the book mm-hmm. uh, they will incline you to read, you know, tear us apart as a reference to what's actually going on literally in the book, mm-hmm. if you don't know the book you, they're, 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 the song is still a complete piece of work um, because it, it will also play as a love song or a relationship song, or whatever. So that's, it's a kind of double thing. I mean, that was the whole point of this, that when we did it with I, Lucifer*, we did it, you know, on a sort of drunken whim, you know, the <laughs> idea of having a soundtrack to a book. And it wasn't really, nobody got involved, really, the publishers of the record label... Um, we just did it as a bit of a laugh, but um, people really liked it. Lots of people discovered the book through the music, and, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And for that audience, it was a oh, it was like a kind of double. You know, it gave a double aspect to, to both projects. So it was great. It was just a great bit of fun. And but this time round, we did it with a bit more intent, um, since it had been a success the first time.
0: Uh, Stephen, do you want to play us a song? Sure.
3: Well, I like the chase till the minute I win it A beautiful face till there's love for me in it Give me your heart and, baby, I'll been it Cause I always kill the things I love Some folk would die for the sake of another Lay down their lives for their sisters and brothers For me sacrifice means something quite other Yet yeah, I always kill the things I love The look in your eyes will turn to surprise As you feel the pain and you realize The one hurting you is somebody who said I Love you Well how I loved you But I always kill the things I love Someday we'll pay back all we've borrowed What we love today we'll lose tomorrow But I won't need to wait for my share of sorrow Cause I always kill the things I love I won't need to wait for my share of sorrow Cause I always kill the things I love The things I love The things I love
0: That's fantastic, you know. That's uh, uh, I hear that as uh, Randy Newman scores a Quentin Tarantino movie. (laughs) (laughs) I'll say that. Yeah. That's beautiful. Now, uh, one of the things I think that's uh, really absolutely at the core of this book is stories. You, You have so many quotes in here about stories, and that's really important to you. And it's really important to your character. So talk about the importance of story to you as a writer and how you work that out through this kind of supernatural premise. And I think you do a great job of using the supernatural trope to get at all sorts of stuff that's not you couldn't do in a novel about the housewife in crisis. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, you might be able to, actually. You might have to work, work yourself through some contortions. But, um, yeah, I suppose the, the parallel that struck me right from the beginning was between... You know, Jake's got this condition where he has to eat people. And uh, when I went when I went into the sort of imaginative exercise of putting myself in his shoes, it seemed uh, to me that you would carry the spirits of these people around inside you after you'd eaten them. put per- tra- traces of their personality, or a soul, or some kind of resonance, uh, a ghostly resonance. Um, it was almost an accident, except perhaps at some sub- subconscious level, that that really paralleled to me the business of reading, because one of the you know. We take these stories into us, we read books, and if they're any good, we're carrying around inside ourselves characters and stories that they never happened. I mean, this is stuff that people made up, and yet it becomes part of our furniture inside, it becomes part of our frame of reference.
0: A memory. Yeah, it,
1: a it, I mean, that's, that's right, you know, literature, the relationship that readers have with literature is that it's like relationships. You, you know, when you read, I look at my bookshelves at home, and each one of those books is like a relationship you know I remember where I was at the time and you know what how old I was and how it felt to meet this person and so on Um, and you read them and you carry them around inside you and it's that's that's to me that's the beauty of the relationship with literature that's what it is it's a community of people certainly I mean in the old days it used to be an invisible community of people before the sort of book blogs and and book clubs and all that kind of stuff it was just this invisible you know fraternity sorority and that's the appeal of it, that we, we are, we're compelled to tell stories uh, and we can't help but carry them around inside us. So this was a very natural metaphorical fit for a person who had to literally consume other people's stories, the stories of their lives, by consuming the actual person. I mean, it's macabre. I'll, gr- I'll grant you, but still. <laughs> a metaphor's a metaphor, you know. <laughs> I'll take it.
0: Well, um, you do a good job of uh, creating some really fairly grotesque and horrific scenes. But not in a manner that um, they're disturbing, but not uh, nauseating, and that's an important line to be able to work. And I think you work it really well as a writer. How did you approach those kind of really over? There's some scenes of just really over-the-top violence, mm. and some of them are kind of funny too. Mm,
1: right. Well, this may mean there's something wrong with me, but I, you know, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, okay. I can imagine uh, that people in moments of uh, extremists. Uh, can see the funny, the, the sort of mordantly funny side of things. I mean, however horrific the thing may be, that is one aspect of just consciousness. It does not obey the rules. You know, at a time when you're supposed to be deeply sad or shocked or horrified or grief-stricken, you know, you might just see it in a in a different way. Um, it's one of Jake's, you know. Uh, Beliefs. I mean, it's one of his sort of. Irrit- he says this is one of the things that exhausts human beings. That the feelings are supposed to fit into certain categories, and they never do. All the boundaries are friable. And what what f- to one observer looks like a, a, a grotesque piece of behaviour, to another one looks f- blackly funny. Um, but it is a difficult uh, line to hold. Um, Jake, if you get the jokes wrong, it's disastrous mm. because then it seems somehow aesthetically or morally bankrupt, actually, and morally uh, dubious. Um, but to answer the question of how do you approach it, um, again, it's, it's really just taking the situation seriously. I mean, what, again, what happens too often in, in genre, not just in books but movies as well, is that the things that are supposed to happen, happen. You know, somebody jumps in through a window and, and frightens somebody and they scream and they freak out. But that's not, life constantly disappoints, you know, genre, genre tropes and genre expectations. So it was really just to take that approach that, you know, there's a scene in the book where Jake is being attacked by a vampire. and He's flying across the room, you know, his guy's got him by the throat as he's flying across the room, there's a copy of American Psycho open on the floor, and he remembers a conversation that he had about the book, and, and sort of, so that, to me, that's what consciousness is always like. It doesn't matter whether you're, you know, it doesn't matter how, how bizarre the predicament is, consciousness will keep lobbing in these kind of inappropriate uh, impulses and thoughts. Um, so if 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 the violent scenes are convincing, I think they are convincing because the, the, the type of consciousness that attends them is is, some people will recognize that because it's, it's, it doesn't obey the rules, I suppose
0: that's what I'm trying to say. Well, you have quite a, a few uh, really entertaining thoughts just about horror itself. And one of the things you say is that you think horror enters spectacularly, but it doesn't. And you, this enables you to get some really interesting effects, and you do that a lot, don't you?
1: Well, it's—I mean—that's my belief that mm-hmm. the, the, the remarkable thing about—and sometimes—and depressing thing about human beings, in fact, is that they can assimilate atrocity very quickly. That's mm-hmm. what history shows us, right? Every every sort of totalitarian regime, every every genocide—it's it's. It, it's there it is, you know, we do it we do this kind of thing all the time. We've been doing it throughout history. Um, th- of course the the public line or the sort of the line that we have to hold to keep our sanity is that you know these things are apparent and, and we would never do them. Um, but it was only the we of a couple of you know, in, in another place in another time that, that was doing them, you know. Um, ordinary ordinary men and ordinary women do terrible things in the right circumstances. Um, so that's that's part of this. Jake says, you know, Jake is saying, look, you know you you, you you try to react in what you know is the emotionally or morally appropriate way which is i cannot go on living if this is what i have to do uh, but the thing is you can <laughs> you know and that's 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 the, that's the, that's the awful truth i mean there, there may be a handful of people who if they if they were given this condition would kill themselves but i suspect most would come would somehow make a negotiation with it and would try and come to terms with it because it's life and you know that's all we've got <laughs>
0: You know, when you're writing a, a novel of the supernatural, um, you have it really helps readers. And you have to have kind of rules as to the way things work. And they have to be consistent. The, the universe has to be consistent. And you have a lot of fun with your rules. So I'm wondering, how did you come up with your kind of, you have a different Everybody has a different vision of the werewolf, the vampire, and it doesn't matter what it is. Right. You can just seem to be no end to the, the spins on this. So talk about developing your spin, because we've seen a lot of vam- werewolves. And right. Did you uh, read a lot of werewolf fiction yourself? Nothing.
1: Uh, I mean, I grew up watching those great Hammer horror movies of the you know, late 60s and through the 70s. And actually a couple of terrific horror movies, especially werewolf movies in the 80s. I mean, in a way, the sort of formal antecedent for this is an American werewolf in London. It's got that same mix of genuinely scary stuff and funny stuff and a kind of believable love story and that mordant humour. But... Research, no. I mean, aside from just sitting around thinking about those movies and what I remembered from them, that's it, you know. I keep wanting to be able to say, you know, there's an Institute for Werewolf Studies in Alaska and I went and spent six months studying there. But of course, you know, that's, it's a nonsense. Research, what? You know, I mean, it's like these things aren't real. So um, so not really. The, the approach was, the, the, the only thing I think that differentiates this is, um, is that the approach to the condition is, is different. You know, the Jake is a traditional werewolf in many ways. I mean, I've, I've just pulled 400 years as a lifespan, you know, out at random because it felt right. But, you know, he still has the weakness to silver and still changes on the full moon and still loses the power of speech. Lots of the very, very traditional, you know, box ticks for the werewolf. The, the, the difference is in the approach. The difference is in getting inside the person's head and really thinking about what that might might be like. Um, so that was it. That's that's the, the that's the long and the short of the of what differentiates it. If it is if it if it works,
0: it it certainly does. Now, Stephen, I'd like you to talk about and maybe play us a song that involves uh, some of the more supernatural aspects of it, and, and talk about using the music to, to evoke some of that stuff. Because that's I was just talking with right. Simon Rich, and he was saying how important. Music is to movies, and, and here we've got music, uh, a soundtrack to a book, which is a, a great right. idea.
2: Right. Well, I mean, I think um, uh, I'm not going to do that now. Okay. <laughs> uh,
0: because I've just prepared myself to sing the song. I
2: will sing, sing the sing a song. I mean, but in terms of the actual supernatural, is that what you meant? The actual, how does the music reflect the sort of supernatural yeah. aspects of the story? I think you know, I didn't go for that. Oh. Okay. Um, and you know, oh, even though we're doing this now, you know, it's not intended that the, you play this music whilst you're reading the book. I think it'd probably get in the way, actually. Mm-hmm. But the, but um, they're, 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 I tried more, really, in a sense, to 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 represent the the. The extremes of the ranges of stuff which is in the book, and there, there is, I suppose, supernatural stuff. Would you call? it Well, there's supernatural? ghosts. I mean, there's ghosts, ghosts
1: that, that, that uses that, which is a yeah. song that Stephen has about, you know, the fact that Jake's carrying around the art, the yeah. resonances of these people inside him. But that's true, actually. The that's about that the traces, only one that directly yeah, the, kind of That
2: deals with the kind of supernatural. In a way, I was more interested in the in 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 this, the human, actually, the mm-hmm. natural. You know, I mean. Glenn talks about what would it actually be like. Forget about the kind of like, w- why and the wherefore this thing could happen. If it actually happened, what would it feel like? So I think that's the angle I went but the, there's, there's There are instrumental pieces on the record which are, I suppose, more haunting cause mm-hmm. to, 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 to capture that. But um, I think, I'm sure you could write very good songs about supernatural things. It's not really my angle, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So I think I concentrated more on the, uh, the human, you know, well, give us some humanity. Do you want a song about eating somebody? Have you eaten somebody? You've, you've got the. I
0: you haven't eaten anybody recently. recently,
2: but you've got the desire to. It's been now. way okay, too long. long. It's been too long.
3: <laughs> you look delicious. You really are a treat. From your follicles right down to your feet. I've no wish for another dish, there's nothing quite as sweet Baby, you look good enough to eat Baby, you look good enough to eat I've no appetite for sinners, I can't stand that type They put me off my dinner, give me stomach cake at night Love the taste of virtue, the flavor of the ride And baby, you look good enough to eat Baby, you look good enough to eat There's nothing on this planet that I would rather do Than chase you through the moonlight like I've been longing to Than take you home and do you right with my red wine ragu Baby you look good enough to eat 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 very good. <laughs> very nice. Aren't you feeling
0: <coughs> peckish now? <Yeah. laughs> as, as I say, very well, good. Uh, Randy Newman scoring. Right. Uh, uh, David Cronenberg. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the, um, uh, uh,
2: that obviously is, is to do with a particular se- set, set, set of scenes in the book as well, mm-hmm. actually, that song, I suppose. Um, and it's at the comic end. Um, uh, there are some serious dark sinister things on there too. I tried to, I mean, I hope I, hope I managed to, I tried, there's a book with a lot, a lot of things in it, as you said, so one of the things my aim was to try and kind of, try and capture some of those musically.
0: Right. Well, I think that uh, one of the things I love in this book is you have some great characters and great character arcs who really care about Jake Marlowe. And uh, uh, Harley has a really great character arc. So talk about creating these characters and, you know, launching them into the ether, so to speak
1: do you know what it's just you know I'm just following my nose here literally I mean there was there was the, there was the sense that that Jake was going to have uh, a handler a familiar mm-hmm. and that that sort of old man with the young charge is a, obviously a very common thing you know it's... It goes back to well, goes back donkey's years, but I mean you can go back to King Arthur, for example, with Merlin, or um, as mm-hmm. it was rewritten for Star Wars, Obi Wan Kenobi and Luke Skywalker. So the old, the old man, and the sort of I mean, Jake isn't, of course, a young man. He's actually several hundred years older than Harley. But I mean, in terms of the way they look, because Jake's preserved at thirty-three, so that was that was a given.
2: Is uh, that a th- I just out of interest, because I the familiar is that's the thing which you know about in witchcraft. Is that, yeah. is that a traditional werewolf
0: thing? No, no,
1: not less, no, it's not. Oh. Um, I mean, it, but it seemed to me like that, that's one of the things that I wanted right. to have. You know, so there had to be an inter, the, and also yeah. given the world that he lives in, there had you to be an intermediary between him and the organisations. Yeah. But the rest of the characters, with with one or two obvious exceptions, uh, were just sort of on the on the fly. Really, uh, I mean, there's a character, the French woman Jacqueline Delong. Mm-hmm. Um, who I brought into the narrative very. Early. She's mentioned very early on in the narrative. Harley talks about her and says she's this, you know, millionaire, multi-millionaire, occult nut. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was just a line that went in there, and I didn't know what I was going to do with it. <laughs> so it, it, there are a lot of characters like that. Oh really? Yeah. I mean, it sounds appalling, doesn't it? What you just sit there and make this shit up. Also. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, actually, pretty much. I mean, there are the, there are the sort of main grammatical elements of the of the narrative. You know, the mm-hmm. sort of there's there's Jake and there's Harley and there's. Other person who will remain nameless, and there's Ellis, you know the guy mm-hmm. who's obsessed, oh, and weird, yeah. There's there's Jake's uh, former beloved. They were all definitely going to be there, but a lot of the incident, a lot of the other characters just appeared, and, and I had to find a purpose for them. <laughs> you know, I wish, you know, I should just lie about this stuff and say, yeah, I sat there and carefully wrote out my flowcharts for plot, and you know, but it, that's not
0: how it got done uh... i wish i was better at doing that but you don't have to wish actually the novel comes together beautifully well it's very uh... well architected um, and there's there's so many great little follow-ups there's a couple of little hints you drop early on and then you bring them back and the reader just goes that's great and you address the reader that's one thing we you were just mentioning earlier you were talking about the importance of reading to you and, and as a guy who reads a lot of books reading is really important to me and it's interesting that you address the reader directly in this book and, and right. speak to the reader. So talk a little bit just about reading your own book, reading your own writing. A
1: well, it's a, it's, a, it's a tried and tested method for intimacy. I mean, I like first-person narratives mm-hmm. as long as the personality is very strong. You think about The Catcher in the Rye or Martin Amos's Money or something like that. Those narrators that are... You know, you are, once you hear the voice, you will listen to pretty much anything they tell you, mm-hmm. right? You can make the most preposterous series of events, <laughs> and the reader won't care because they are seduced by the voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and voice, you know, my novels divide into two strands. There are novels like this which have a very, very distinctive first-person narrative voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I- if they work, they work largely because you're carried by the strength of the personality, uh, and you will listen, or you'll go wherever he or she takes you. The other half of the work is very different it, it's it's employs third person omniscient narrators and it 's very sort of you know it 's the kind of omniscient thing where you 're looking down on the characters and you don 't you 're not involved more with one than any of the other but if for this story, this was the exact you know i mean this was appropriate it had to be a, it had to be the guy sitting you down and telling you his story you mm-hmm. know uh, it goes back all the way to the ancient mariner and, and beyond you know the that's what you want. you want. If you're going to do a first-person narrative, if you, go, if you want an intimate relationship with the reader when you are confessing, that's mm-hmm. the point. It's a confessional novel. And for the confessional novel, you can't really do it in any, any other way than having a first-person uh, uh, narrator. But that's what I wanted, to have a scene, you know, this scene, this sort of sub-gothic scene at the beginning of the book, which opens in Harley's library. Mm-hmm. It's a very gentleman club-type, you know, uh, environment with all these lovely books and the open fire and Hammer the snow forward. falling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> very, I mean, you know, deliberately. Uh-huh. Um, so I wanted it to sort of nail its colours to the mast in that first um, scene, but also to have Jake's voice very quickly be this kind of, you know, beckoning gesture to the reader to come in and find out. Um, so that was it. I mean, you know, there was... Um, it's, it, it, you know, I, I just love novels that have a very, very strong first-person voice, that's seduced by the voice. Um, I'm bothered about language. You know, mm-hmm. that's, that's the thing, and that's what that, that, that form gives you.
0: It comes, it comes through. I was going to ask you about the prose of Ennui because you, and, and the other, are, this really struck, reminded me a lot of a, of a James Bond at the end of his career novel because mm. he has some of this kind of daring do, but he's just really tired
1: of it. Right, and, and he's self-conscious. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the point that, you know, Jake is a high art consciousness mm-hmm. stuck in a low art predicament. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he knows that, which is why yeah, you know, like it's the that. other thing that mm-hmm. the, the, the addresses to the reader facilitate, because when situations come up in the novel, which are cliché situations in the sense that, that you, f- you find these things often in, in horror movies and so on, having that f- intimate first-person seductive narrative voice allows Jake to step outside the conveyor, have one foot in the action of the conventional scene. And one foot out, talking to the reader, saying, "Look, I know this is ridiculous, but nonetheless, this guy flew through the air and you know tried to rip my throat out." <laughs> um, so you get—it's like having your cake and eating it. You know mm-hmm. that was that was part of the fun of doing this—to um, have a, a, an ostensibly genre novel that was also a dialogue with the genre or a commentary on the way in which genre fiction differs from what people call literary fiction. You know so. That was another appeal of, of doing it that way.
0: Well, there's some really fun parts where you, where Jake says, well, now, if it was in the movies, right. <laughs> and I really like that stuff. That's a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, when they make the film, they'll probably cut those lines out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I hope they don't. That was the, That's the only thing they, that's what they should have in. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, one of the things that this does have, actually, kind of a butt-kicking plot, and and you have some great kind of uh, organizations set up. You have, um, now, why do they call the vampires bouchies? Fig- <laughs> not figure that out.
1: Well, it's uh, I th- you know it's uh, it's it's ridiculous. This um, my parents are Anglo Indians, uh, and w- what they used to call bugs, mm-hmm. cockroaches, and so on uh, in India, in the Anglo Indian sort of vernacular, was bouchies. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Night bouchies are bugs that come out at night, and that just seemed like an appropriate, you know, slightly <laughs> derogatory uh, term for vampires from Jake's perspective. Um, so I don't know that's it that's the story behind that Um, and it's amazing you're the first person who's asked me that Oh, it's you know people just kind of take it and like yeah okay that sounds right (laughs) It,
0: it does sound right but I was just curious because uh, I was thinking, that it was that you you refer you refer so much and so eloquently to the modern world. You throw in Obama and Bush, so I thought we were maybe getting into the Bushies here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, it's, it's Bushy. I, I should <laughs> I should have given <laughs> a phonetic uh, deconstruction.
2: I've got a slightly Republican twist, though, haven't they? Vampires.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, peerless businessmen, you know.
0: <laughs> now. Uh, I'd like you to talk about, one of the things about this book is I get the feeling that this is, we're going to, haven't seen the last of these characters.
1: sequel's already written.
0: Oh, good.
1: <laughs> and there'll be another one in, in 2013.
0: Oh, well, that sounds fantastic. Um, Stephen, mm-hmm. uh, why don't you play us another song?
2: Okay, well, there's um, lots of female characters. Well, not lots, there are female characters in the book. I'm not going to say much because I don't give them any plot points, but so... Um on the record, there are female voices you 'll have to use your imagination with my sort of monotone croak, but imagine i 'm a girl. <laughs>
3: To show for my sins A gunshot eye A bloodstained smile And a kiss Like a dirty child But you Can't save me Anytime Save me anytime. I retreat into myself for a week or maybe more. I do these things that you and I deplore. I can't be trusted my friends and I sure can't be trusted with myself anymore but you can save me anytime Who's a kid? Who's a mother? We're all as lost as each other. Who's a killer? Who's a lover? I can't tell the one from the other, but you. Can't save me anytime.
0: Very nice, you know, and and that brings back uh, this some thoughts that one of the things that you do well with the werewolf, the, his perceptions. There's a line in here that I really love, which is um, that humans wear their histories like microclimates, <laughs> and I think this gets back into this idea of storytelling that that the werewolf looks everywhere, and sees stories, and so you use the actual. Um, perceptions, the heightened perceptions of the supernatural creature to gain access to perceptions of, such as what mm. uh, Steven just played in a sense and those kind of become like little uh, uh, frescoes within the larger work. So talk about uh, using this supernatural uh, trope to explore story and also placing those stories within the overall plot arc.
1: Well, <clears throat> The, um, the microclimates thing, I suppose, is the, you know, it's this idea that, I mean, Jake complains about developing the headache of interest in people, <laughs> um, and that's, that's the problem. Um, that he, he, for him, well, there's two things. One is that um, the more interested or emotionally invested in a person he is, unfortunately, the better they're likely to taste if he eats them. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a sort of, it's a terrible aspect of the curse. There are little mini curses within the the general condition, and and one of them is that because he can see what makes people the way they are, I mean he can see the explanations for their flaws and their weaknesses and so on, he's actually weirdly sympathetic, I mean, in that he doesn't judge them. Um, The problem with that is that um, he still has to eat them. So the stories, you know, the individual stories, it's a bit like he sort of... If he, if he lived forever, he would be like God because he would, he would have absorbed every aspect of, you know, hu- human, every aspect of humanity. Um, he would have that kind of om- omniscience. And that's appealing from the, from the novelist's point of view because that's sort of what you're trying to do anyway. I mean, there's that wonderful Auden poem called The Novelist when he says, you know, um, that uh, to achieve his lightest wish... Uh, He must become the whole of boredom, subject to vulgar complaints like love. Among the just be just, among the filthy, filthy too. And in his own weak person, if he can, suffer dully all the wrongs of man. Um, And that's, I think, what novelists are trying to do. They're trying to... It's a ludicrous project, of course. uh, But they are trying to find room, imaginatively, for all the aspects of human experience. All the things that go up to make, uh, make a human being. Um, Jake, you know, to take your points about using the supernatural to get to that, it's a ve- you know the fact that he can see people's entire histories and the fact that he not their entire histories but he can see a lot of them and the fact that he takes these people into him when he's when he's eaten them, it gives that kind of growth of understanding. You know that he's seeing things from multiple perspectives. Whether whether he, whether he likes it or not, monthly murder deepens his understanding of people. Uh, it's twisted, I know, but there you are. But that, that's that's, a, that's how that
0: fits together, I think. So so all we have to do is murder one person a month and we'll, we'll be better people for I'm it. I'm not recommending it. <laughs> you know, and I have to say, too, that this book has a, a really a, quite a good page turning plot. It's a book that you want to sit down and read pretty much in one sitting as much as you can. and. I'd like you to just talk a little bit about developing that. How much did, I mean, did you like have to like rip stuff out? Did you write a 600 page book and rip out 300 pages?
1: No, I mean, uh, sort of unusually for me, I suppose, this was written sequentially from starting on page one, going to the end, and it was written very fast. I mean, I wrote this in about three, between three and four months, three and a half months, something like that, Mm -hmm. Uh, which, you know, by my standards, is pretty quick. Uh, given that you know an earlier novel, Weathercock, took six years you know, <laughs> and did come down from 1,000 pages to 500. So you know the process is not always like this. But this was pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't a lot of... The r- I mean, I don't want to say there wasn't a lot of work involved, otherwise it feels like I'm getting money for old rope, but um, it was an easy <laughs> book to write in that once I had the voice, it was very straightforward. Um, the plot, as I said earlier, I'm not a natural plotter. I'm not a natural dramatist. You wouldn't um, know that
0: from reading this book. Well, I'm
1: glad you say that, but it, it's, it's not, you know, um, I suppose part, I'll tell you why. It's partly because I think, and this is a problem that literary novelists have with the nature of plot, it's essentially fraudulent, right? Life isn't like that. Life doesn't have a plot. Life isn't stories that have, you know, convenient arcs and character developments and all that. Life's just a mess. Mm-hmm. So there is, an, there is an automatic act of sort of aesthetic fraudulence for novelists, just by virtue of what they do, because they're imposing, most novelists anyway, are imposing a kind of story on it, on you know, they're they they t- giving you a version of the world that is really not true. Mm-hmm. But of course, that's what we do. And if you don't do that, nobody's going to read nobody's going to read the book.
0: Well, that's also how we identify ourselves. That's my identity is made up of the story of me. Right. Exactly. And that's and why actually, we crave story. Yeah.
1: I suppose that that you can. I mean, you can look at a life like that. That there will be recurring themes and so on. But mm-hmm. it's not quite as orderly as 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 novelists. Not quite as convenient as novelists would have us believe. Um, so that I think is one of the things that gets in, has in the past got in the way of it for me with plot that mm-hmm. I, I'm not interested in it. You know because it seems not, it seems, it seems like a fraud. I suppose, mm-hmm. but you know eventually you wake up to the fact that well that's all well and good, but if, you, if people don't actually continue reading the, reading this, you know don't keep turning the pages or don't make it to the end of the book, your your work is in vain. So it was a bit of a, an experiment for me to actually try and make a story that had a real. Sp- you know, a plot spine and that, that actually moved forward very quickly, despite being digressive and discursive and having these little sort of weird meditations on things.
0: There's many, many brilliant, memorable lines in this in this book, I'll have to say. And I don't want to spoil them for the readers, I, but there's all sorts of stuff. There's a, a bit about life, like a drunk. I mean, you just have some lots of great lines in here, and they seem to flow from your ability to inhabit the character, and I think that's what you do really well, is you get so deeply into the character and into this kind of absurd situation, mm. oh, every month I turn into a wolf and eat somebody, mm. that that gives you, that kind of dissonance gives you the ability to uh, write a plot that's good, write a character who has a voice that seems convincing, but and bring in some of the more uh, pithy work that it makes the book really memorable and resonant.
1: Right. I mean, the, the those lines are, you know, I... The, that's what I write for, you know, to find out. It's that whole thing of, you know, how do I know what I think till I see what I've written? And Jake's mm-hmm. a great character to do that with because he's quick. You know, I mean, it's it, he basically makes pronouncements with great authority. <laughs> uh, and I've found, actually, that that's the, way, that's the way to do it. Just just sound as if you know what you're talking about. and Do it with great authority. Do it with a bit of panache. Uh, and it'll pretty much carry, you know. Um, but... Yes, I mean, the, the, the book has to... For, for it to be satisfying for me, I have to be finding out what I think about things as I write it. Otherwise, I don't think I'd make it through the, through the process. Mm-hmm. Um, so when Jake talks about, you know, for example, when he's talking about the inanity of, of, of contemporary media and he's talking about how the news, you know... is now ...is <laughs> now a forum for, tell us what you think, you know. It's the news, you know. It's nothing to do with what we think. Just give us the information, you know. Um, so when he's talking about that, Um, I might have had a sort of shapeless version of that thought somewhere and it might have come out in an after-dinner conversation or something but not very well. The beauty of doing something like this is it gives you the opportunity to really hone it and say it as pithily and succinctly as you possibly can. You know, um, these are all thoughts that I have, Mm -hmm. but of course in real life we don't have the liberty or the time or the facility to, you know, say it snappily. The beauty of doing it this way is that I can get those thoughts that I have and would not express very well in, in real time. Here is the sort of patience and the stillness of the page, and you can get it right, do it very succinctly.
0: And I think Stephen captures that with, with his music. He does mm. the same thing. You bring it into a, a, a song, mm. three minutes of a song. So talk about crafting some of your lyrics.
2: Well, I think um, it, with me, it's definitely like um, distillation. You know, so, I mean, In this case, obviously, I read, I read, the, I read the manuscript, and then um, that percolated for a while, I suppose, and then... Got, in my case, they've just got to sort of trust that if you're dwelling on something and and some characters and some you know some in this case a, a story that things start to pop out as they seem to after time you know and um you're never quite sure i mean in this case i mean I probably wrote at least twice as much material as is on the record mm-hmm. um some of which uh was left off because it was terrible and some of which is left off because it just you know didn't fit you know i mean i i I'm a believer in albums being about forty to forty-five minutes long, you know, mm. rather than overstuffed. So some of that stuff will come out, you know, the forms. But um, part of that's part of the process, isn't it? Is just is, is distillation. That's how I see it. And with words, particularly, you can't really. Particularly, I think it would be a bit sort of it would be a bit odd to sort of literally take lines from the text, you know, and try and try and wrestle them into 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 song. lyrics. it's it seems to me, you know, are quite different than. Uh, text, you know, that a writer writes. And I don't write in that way, of course, because they really come out if you start by improvising and then hope that, you know, some of the meaning kind of distills down. And then, like Stephen Sondheim says, you know, you kind of go through the whole process of re it and, 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 you know, crafting it down till it kind of works. So that's, that's the way it works for me. You know, it's not really I'm going to start at the beginning, go through and then re-edit. It's much more you've got the whole thing. It's a big sort of furry...
0: Appropriately, you <laughs> <enough>. know. <laughs> it's like a tea bag. Yeah, so a sort tea full of, yeah, of words, a big mess,
2: sort of thing. And then you kind of hope that you, by by the time you get uh, by the time it's time to hand it in to your record label, Six Degrees, you know that
0: that, um, that it's, it's 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 there, you know. And I hope that it comes over. Yeah. Uh, well, it yeah. sounds beautiful. Yeah. I've been speaking with Glenn Duncan. His new novel is The Last Werewolf. And Stephen Coates, his he is. The Real Tuesday Weld, and his new album is Songs for the Last Werewolf. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen. Thanks so much. Pleasure. Thanks for having us.